Good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. We are blessed by our one another's presence that we can be uplifted and encouraged. If you're visiting with us, we're certainly encouraged by your presence here today. And we hope that our service has been beneficial and it's edifying for you. And I hope the things that I present to you this morning will be beneficial and help you in some way. We continue in our study in the book of Romans And we're looking in Romans chapter 9, and I've long said that the Romans chapter 9 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. And the reason, first reason, is as you go through the book of Romans and you begin there in Romans chapter 1, Paul begins by talking about sin in Romans 1 and Romans chapter 2. And he's talking about the problem of sin, and he details a lot of sin. In Romans chapter 3, he moves on to salvation. He asks a very important question there. Is God not only the God of the Jews? He's also the God of the Gentile, and he begins to bring in this idea of the Gentiles being a part of God's redemptive plan all along. And to prove that, he ushers in the Old Testament law, the prophets, the Psalms, David, and he brings all of those in and shows this was God's plan all along. At the end, And then in Romans chapter 4, he puts on top of all of that, he brings in Abraham, the father of their faith, and he talks about Abraham being justified by faith. <clears throat> and in He was justified in faith long before he was circumcised, even 400 years before the Old Testament law ever came into existence. At the end of chapter 4, he introduces Christ, and he begins to talk about the salvation that was brought in by Christ. In Romans chapter 5, he talks about Adam and the sin of Adam, and that death came by Adam because Adam sinned, and so that death passed unto all men, for that all have sinned. And we talked about how that that was the nature of mankind, not the guilt of Adam's sin was on all of our hands, but that... We all have the nature of Adam that we have the ability to make choices and decisions. And in doing so, we're going to go against God's will. In Romans chapter 6, he asked that very important question. Should we continue in sin that grace may, be, may abound? And with a resounding no, Paul says, why would you want to do that? You've been baptized into Christ, resurrected to a newness in life. Why would you want to go back to sin. Later on in chapter 6, he asks another question or he makes the statement that we are either slaves of righteousness or we're slaves of no other way about it. We were in one of those groups in Romans chapter 7. He begins by saying that there is now therefore no condemnation in those that are in Christ. And he illustrates this struggle that he had that you and I have today when he talks about the things that he ought not to do. Those are the things that he does and that struggle that we still have today. In Romans chapter 8, he talks about the Spirit making intercession for us. And he makes that famous statement that we like to, that we go to all the time, talking about how, that, how can anything be against us if God is for us. And it ends by talking about God's love and how that nothing can separate us from God's love. And that is where we're at right now. <clears throat> A very high-level view of where we're at right now. And as we enter into chapter 9, and the reason I say my first reason that this is my favorite chapter is because when you and I begin talking about uh, God with other people, oftentimes we talk about God's sovereignty first. We talk about His sovereignty or His supreme authority, and I love how Paul laid this out. He begins talking about sin, salvation, and sanctification, and then he brings in God's sovereignty or his supreme authority. And it's at this point that he starts connecting all of these principles that he's established in the first eight chapters here with God's sovereignty in chapter 9. So we have our picture up here that we've used every time talking, looking at watch gears. And all of these gears operate and function together for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to so that 
the person can tell time or tell the date. And if one of these gears isn't functioning properly, then the purpose of telling time or telling date isn't functioning properly. And we compare that to our salvation, that there are many gears involved in our salvation, that there's grace and mercy and love and belief and all of these things function together for the purpose, singular purpose of our salvation. Now, where that parallel begins to break down a little bit is that some of these gears are operated by us and some of these are operated by God. Those that are operated by God will never fail, but there are some that are operated by us that do fail. And the reason we bring this in and we talk about all these different gears is to bring up a point that because we talk about today, we talk a lot about grace and mercy. It's not to degrade the value of any of these other gears. It's just more so that we don't have the time to talk about all of the gears all of the time. And so, although throughout the entirety of this book, he's talked about all of these gears in some way or another. The overall theme of Romans has been that <clears throat> to prove that God's gracious gift of the forgiveness of sin and salvation of mankind comes through Christ and meeting the conditions of salvation, or excuse me, the conditions of obedience. And this morning, I want us to pause a little bit and look at context. I know that we've talked about context somewhat throughout this, but it's very important that we get clear context this morning. Many years ago, a man by the name of John Calvin developed a doctrine called the Tulip Doctrine, and the T stands for total depravity. In other words, that when you enter into this world, you have the guilt of Adam's sin on your head. There's nothing that you can do. The U stands for unconditional election, that God arbitrarily selects people for salvation. <clears throat> the L stands for a limited atonement. That, that atonement of Christ only applies to those that God unconditionally and arbitrarily selects. There's irresistible grace in I. That those that are unconditionally elected cannot resist the grace of God. And then P, perseverance of the saints. Those that are unconditionally elected, they can never fall from the grace and mercy of God. Now, it's important that we understand this, that in Western Christianity, most times you're not going to meet somebody that believes all five tenets of the Tulip Doctrine or what we call Calvinism. But for a lot of Western Christianity, some of these principles are picked out and used for different doctrines, and mostly unconditional election and irresistible grace. And Romans chapter 9 is a very popular passage for these principles to be lifted out of context and to be used and applied for those Calvinistic doctrines. And that's why context is very, very important. As we look at context, and one of the things that I have always tried to do in this study was keep things within the context of Romans. And I haven't really even removed outside and gone to what we would refer to as a universal context, the entire Bible. I've kept it specifically in Romans for a reason. And I want us to understand what Paul is trying to drive home in his letter to the church at Rome. One of my favorite sayings was given to us by Brother Chris Gerald whenever he talked about context, that whenever you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. And that is a very true statement because oftentimes God's word is manipulated and used and things are lifted out of their context to teach a doctrine or principle for which it's not intended to teach at all. So be aware of that as we talk about text this morning and leaving everything in context. So we begin looking in Romans chapter 9. And Paul begins by declaring a love that he has for his kinsmen. He says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And almost immediately we get a bit of personal application here. Paul 
has a love for his kinsmen to the extent that he says, I wish that I was cut off from Christ. What about your family, your friends? Do you have that same kind of love? Do you have that same kind of love for souls that this just desire for them to be saved? And keep this in its proper perspective. Paul's greatest enemy on earth was the Jews. They ultimately wanted his death. And here he is making this proclamation of love that, and hope that they could have salvation. What about us and those around us? Even those that we say that we love, do we have the same value of their souls as Paul did for those that would wish that he were dead? You know, Paul goes on to talk about some very important things that the Jews had, some very important privileges and even advantages that they had. He says there that as the Israelites, they had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, the patriarchs, all of these things. And ultimately they had the bloodline of Christ, which was ushered in through the nation of Israel. So what happened? What went wrong? Was it as if God and his word failed? Did God not actually bless them as he said he would? Did he actually go back on his promises? In verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And I want you to notice throughout this chapter, the outline of this chapter is based on accusations and questions. Much like the book of Romans is, many questions that are very accusatory, and that is what, how he frames his, his argument for God's sovereignty throughout chapter 9. And the first of that is, God, if the gospel is true, then God has been unfaithful. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all are descended from Israel, belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this, is what the, for, excuse me, for this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah will have a son. He uses the term here offspring, and it's in the New King James and the King James Version. It, the term there is seed. He uses them in two different ways. The first in verse 7, he uses the reference to the seed or the offspring of Abraham as physical Israel. In verse 8, he then talks about counted for offspring or save, or excuse me, or seed, and he's referencing those that are spiritual. So he's talking about these two different seeds or offspring, and it was very important for him to distinguish this. He's distinguished it many times throughout the book of Romans, but now he's distinguishing it for a very important reason. It was imperative that the hearers or the readers of these words understand that it wasn't about physical descent, that it was about spiritual descent. He said in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. In Romans 4 and 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, talking about physical Israel, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say the faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So he's beginning to lay the, ground, the, the groundwork for God's sovereignty going all the way back and establishing 
what was done with Abraham and following in the faith of Abraham as it was counted unto him in righteousness. And they needed to understand that the belief or unbelief of Israel was not going to alter God's plan. It wasn't going to change it. It wasn't going to change his plan to offer mercy to all mankind, Gentiles included. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 3, there's a question there. For what if some did not believe? He goes on to say, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? If some didn't believe, if Israel didn't believe, does that mean the faith of God is without effect? Well, obviously the answer to that question is no. Whether they believed or not, was not going to change God's plan. And there was a distinction between physical Israel and those that followed after the faith of Abraham. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 10, he goes on to say, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the, order, <clears throat> the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau I hated. And I want us to focus on a word there that I didn't highlight, but it talks about God's purpose of election. And it's words like this that get lifted out of the Scripture to be used for doctrines that are not being taught. And it's trying being used to be made about what we call individual salvation. And that's not what Paul is talking about at all here in the context of what's going on. He says there in verse 12, the older will serve the younger. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 25 when Rebekah was told that she has two nations in her womb and that the older would serve the younger. Now, if this was about individual salvation, then individually Esau would serve Jacob. Historically, that never happened. Historically, that did not happen. If you go back and you, we're not going to go back and read it, but Jacob got in the position that he did by tricking Esau out of his birthright. Esau was the older. Jacob fled, and many years later, he would come to meet his brother, Esau. And whenever he did, he was actually terrified of what Esau might do to him. They actually do make amends, and they go their separate ways. Esau would be the father of the nation of Edom, and Jacob would be the father of the nation of Israel. But Esau never individually served Jacob. Nationally, they did. If you go to the book of 2 Samuel, you'll see there that the Edomites were brought under the subjection of Israel. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. Nationally, and he's keeping things in a national context. The scripture demonstrates God's love for his plan and what he had planned for Israel. The other thing about this passage, when it's oftentimes lifted out, these two verses are kept together, Romans chapter, or verse 12 and verse 13. But the reality is those two statements were made thousands of years apart. Verse 12 was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 25, whereas verse 13 was made at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi when God was talking about his destruction of Edom. Yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. It wasn't about individual salvation, and this demonstrates God's plan and his plan for Israel. So why did God bring Isaac into this question? Why did he talk about Jacob. 
It was to demonstrate that God has the right to choose how he would work out his redemptive plan for mankind. He is sovereign. He has the supreme authority. Something I want you to think about. Historically, in Israel's history, not one time has the case ever, was the case ever made by Israel for Ishmael or for Esau. Not one time do we read of that. Not one time do we read of where Ishmael was the firstborn, but God said all the blessings would flow through Isaac. Not one time do you read about Israel saying, well, Ishmael was the firstborn, he should have received the blessing. Not one time do you see them arguing the case for Esau, because Esau was the firstborn, and although he was tricked out of a birthright, he was still the firstborn. They don't make that case for Esau either. They followed after God's redemptive plan as long as it benefited them. The moment he brought the Gentiles and those outside of the bloodline of Israel, they didn't like it and they opposed it. And they began to question God's supreme authority. The entire book of Romans smacks of arrogance from the Jews. How do you question God's sovereign authority and his plan for mankind? Modern times, we take God's word and we manipulate it to use it to whatever doctrine we want to do, and we lift passages out like this and try to make it about individual salvation, and that's not what he's talking about. And whenever you do that, you're completely missing the point that Paul was trying to make. What the point he was trying to make was that God intended for Israel to be that conduit for the provisions of salvation that would come through Christ. That was the plan, and that was what he, the point that he was trying to make. In verse 14, it says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So now we have our second accusation. If the gospel is true, then God has been just. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There are a few things that I'm certain of in this world. I remember when I was younger, I had very definite ideas on things such as how child, children should be raised. Now that I'm older and my children are older and they have minds of their own and they speak those opinions and oftentimes more so than I would like, I began to realize that my definite opinion or definite ideas on child raising were dumb. When I was younger, I had very definite ideas on the matters of the church and how things should be done. And being close friends with elders and working alongside elders over the years, I've realized my definite ideas were dumb. <laughs> there are some things that I'm certain of in this world. I'm certain of my wife's love for me. I know that it can't be physical. As I've gotten older, this has deteriorated, and it never was the moneymaker anyways. I know that I have the emotional intelligence of a doorknob, but every day she honors me by being my wife. She blesses me and she loves me. Another thing that I am certain of is that I was not emotionally prepared for the commitment that it would take to maintain normal eyebrow length. You wake up one day and your eyebrows are just doing this. I had no idea that this was coming. 
one of the things that I am absolutely certain of, and I've always been absolutely certain of, and this is the second reason that Romans chapter 9 is my favorite chapter, is my status in relationship with God. That He is absolutely the God of this ball that we live on, and we are under His subjection. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. It is my choice. It is my decision. I rule this ball, and I will make that choice and decision. I think that's something that's very important that we get in its proper order and prioritize in our life. Modern Christianity has gone through God's Word and said this thing is no longer a sin. This thing is no longer immoral. These things are old-fashioned, and you're looking at things in an old-fashioned way. When that was God's plan and God's decision, and He has supreme authority. And we've gone out, and we've taken His Word, and we've put ourselves on His level by saying these things are no longer immoral or sinful, or that they're just old-fashioned. It's sickening that we would put ourselves on the same level and plane as God when He is the supreme authority and He has sovereign right in all of our lives. This portion of Romans has been abused for many different ways, mostly to deny the ability for you and I to choose to faithfully follow after God. That you are not selected that God arbitrarily chooses people. And the reality is that's not what Paul is trying to talk about at all. In verse 16, he goes, So then it depends on not human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So when he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever whoever he wills. God's choice that physical Israel would bring in the Messiah into the world was part of his plan. And his intention was that they would be a blessing to the Gentiles by ushering in Christ and bringing his redemptive plan through Christ. In Genesis or Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, it says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It is in this sense that we understand that God's promise was not based upon the Jews' will. It was not based upon the Jews' desires or whatever they thought. It was ultimately based upon his choice. So why bring in Pharaoh and talk about the hardening of his heart at this juncture? Pharaoh brings a very important illustration and powerful illustration which they would be familiar with in their history and that they would appreciate understanding the hardening of his heart and the purpose of doing that that God's power might be proclaimed. And as I was reading this, a thought occurred to me, or a question occurred to me. What if Pharaoh had have changed his mind? What if Pharaoh would have softened his heart and decided to release the Hebrews from slavery? Would God's power still be proclaimed? Would God's glory still be proclaimed? 
So whether his heart hardened or whether his heart softened, God's glory was going to be proclaimed. It's a reminder of Jonah. As Jonah went to Nineveh and God said to, for them to, pre, to preach about repentance, and they repented, God's glory was proclaimed. But then you look at the book of Nahum, and that was about the destruction of Nineveh. And Nineveh was destroyed. God's glory was still going to be proclaimed, and his power was going to be proclaimed. And it's not as though as God was intentionally reaching into the heart of Pharaoh and the mind of Pharaoh and hardening him. He was allowing him to be in circumstances which would allow for his true character to be revealed. You know, if you take clay and you take butter, and you put them outside in the sun, one of them hardens and one of them softens. It's the same sun. What's the difference? It's what's comprised in the clay and in the butter. The same sun shines on mankind. The same sun shined on Nineveh. The same sun shined on Pharaoh. The circumstances in their lives allowed their true character to be revealed, and that's what God was saying. It is worthwhile to note the likenesses that there are between Pharaoh and Israel and cannot be overlooked that Paul was trying to teach that God maintained Pharaoh in circumstances that would reveal their true character. He maintained Israel and the Jews in positions that would reveal their true character. That just as Pharaoh had rejected God's plan, to his demise, the Jews were rejecting God's plan to their demise. And at this point, that we cannot overlook this point. God's plan was not thwarted by their rebellion. If anyone should have remembered this, in looking back at Pharaoh, it should have been the Jews. Making that direct connection between what Pharaoh was doing and what they were doing. And this leads to the next accusation that God cannot find fault with us since this has been his purpose. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Back in Romans chapter 3 and verse 5, a very similar statement is made, but if our righteousness serves to show the unrighteousness, or excuse me, if our unrighteousness shows to serve to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Very accusatory in these questions and the remarks. And the answer to this question for, I don't know, for the longest time, I think I honestly read it wrong. It was, who can resist the will of God? The answer was, you know, no one. And I think I was, re I was reading it as, who can change the will of God? Well, that's, in that context, no one can change the will of God. But who can resist the will of God? He's just got done proving that Pharaoh resisted the will of God. Who else is historically resisted the will of God? Israel. Time and time again, they resisted the will of God. Verse 20 proves that he's talking about Israel. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? How do we know he's talking about Israel? Because this is lifted directly from a prophecy concerning Israel. Back in the book of Isaiah, 
It is Israel that has continually and consistently resisted the will of God. God had the right to choose Isaac over Ishmael. God had the right to choose Jacob over Esau. God had the right to choose Israel as being the nation in which he would begin his redemptive plan. God now has the right to usher in the Gentiles that follow under him in, in faith and righteousness and, those, and not those that follow after the law. This was God's right. This was God's choice. And this potter clay metaphor is oftentimes abused, but by reading it inside the Old Testament passages, it really points home to what Paul is talking about. This plan that God had and the continual resistance that he had, that the Jews in Israel had against God whatever it was, not just this plan with Christ, but if you go all the way back and look at their history, they continually resisted his plans. The Jews had everything turned around. That was their problem. They had put themselves on the same plane as God, and they were attempting to dictate to God who was going to have salvation. It was going to be them and them alone, and the Gentiles would have no part in this salvation. And these passages prove something that's very important for us to understand. They prove God's mercy and patience. If you look out throughout the history of Israel, God continually wanted to pour out his wrath on them, but pulled back and didn't pour that wrath out because he endured with them. He was long-suffering with them. He had patience he had mercy with them, although they continually rebelled against him. Why did God show this patience to this nation that was continually rebelling against him? Why did God endure with what he refers to as vessels of wrath that were made for destruction? Well, verse 23 tells us, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The purpose was to reveal his riches of, his riches <clears throat> of mercy, his glory to the vessels of mercy. So you have two vessels here that are formed from the same clay. One was for destruction, which was physical Israel, those that would follow after the law, and there are vessels of mercy. Those that were the offspring of the lineage of Abraham that followed in faith and righteousness. So who are the vessels of mercy? I want you to remember that Paul opens in Romans chapter 1, he's talking about to the saints who have been called. And he says here, the vessels of mercy in order to make known the riches of glory for his vessels of mercy, even us whom he has called. The vessels of mercy are Christians. They were the Gentiles that responded in obedience to the gospel plan of Christ. Notice the difference of vessels of destruction and vessels of mercy. Physical Israel and spiritual following after Christ. And this is kind of the thesis of the entirety of Genesis, not Genesis, but Romans chapter 9. 
The Jews really had no right to fuss over the Gentiles being accepted into God's redemptive plan. They had no right to argue that God has always had the Gentiles in mind. You see, the Jews looked at it as that God never had them in mind. And multiple times, Paul has pointed that out. And even in this passage, he says that he, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, that this was always part of the plan, that God was not only the God of the Jews, but he was also the God of the Gentile, that he always had a redemption both Jew and Gentile, and that plan would come through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to prove this by going to two passages from the book of Hosea. In Hosea, or in Romans chapter 9 and verse 24, it says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people, and he and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So he's gone back to the book of Hosea to prove out exactly what he's been saying this entire time. Hosea was prophesying of a time in Israel when they would be joined to the Lord in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and mercy. But he also prophesied of Israel being punished. And in that punishment, he says that he was going to have mercy and that he would call people that weren't previously called. And that they would be a part of his redemptive plan also. That they would be called loved and beloved and be added in just as the Jews into his plan. He further goes on to go back further in the Old Testament and goes to the book of Isaiah. In verse 27, he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah as predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom, and become like Gomorrah. And this is one of those passages that kind of tends to get manipulated when that term remnant comes out. And talking about people today, in its context, think about what Paul has done. He's been talking about Israel historically in the entirety of this chapter. And he's now talking about a portion of those being saved. It's ridiculous to declare that God is unjust or Unfair that he has been acting without mercy towards this nation without, throughout its history when the reality is he's been preserving them all this time for his glory. And that although not all of them would be saved, some would be saved, that there would be some that would follow after Christ, that there would be some that would submit themselves to the gospel call of Jesus Christ. It's unjust and ridiculous to say that God had not been acting with mercy towards Israel when all these years he had been preparing them for this very important part in his plan. The Jews had a reality that was staring them in the face whenever you read these passages. First and foremost, the, the, the Gentiles were not given God's law. The Gentiles were not given the prophets. They were not giving all these advantages that Paul talks about at the opening of Romans chapter 9. Yet by their acceptance of the gospel message, 
they were the vessels of mercy. And the Jews were the vessels of wrath or destruction. Because they were clinging to a law that was no longer in place. Because Christ had nailed that law to the cross. Secondly, the Jew, on the other hand, followed the law of Moses and refusing to submit to Christ in this Old Testament system that they were continually following after that even was foretold would come to an end. When you read in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31, it talks about the law coming to an end. It was prophesied time and time again that this law was going to come to an end, that it had a purpose, that it served its purpose, but it would come to an end. And the Jews were still clinging to that. Their willful ignorance, to be completely honest, when you read this and you see these accusatory questions and their willful ignorance, it's very hard to be sympathetic with. But Paul had this great love for them and he was continually sympathetic with them and continually taught and was merciful and showed God's mercy and patience with them. <coughs> In verse 30, it says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the cherry on the topping of Romans chapter 9. Not to this point, Paul has not been this declarative at all. Now, underlying God's sovereignty, he makes this declaration. Israel, who pursued the law that they thought would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they didn't do it in faith. Whereas the Gentile who was not given the law, who for the most times in history did not pursue after God or seek righteousness after God, now that they were being allowed in. Why? Because of the very opposite. They were doing it by faith. The Jews sought justification by the works of the law and they stumbled. They were offended by the stumbling stone. This stone that was referenced all the way back in the book of Isaiah twice, a stone of offense that would cause them to stumble. It was prophesied that this would happen. And both of these conditions were devastating to their spiritual welfare and their spiritual standing before God. They pursued righteousness through a law that they could not attain righteousness. It was only through Christ that righteousness could be attained. This had to be devastating as they read it because Paul has not been this pointed at all throughout Romans chapter 9. And he lays it out under the sovereignty of God and regarding prophecy after prophecy that 
had foretold all of these things happening and all of these things coming about the Messiah, which would be ushered in through Israel's bloodline. And as the Messiah was standing right in front of them, doing all of these wonderful works, doing all, teaching them in many different ways in which they had not taught, they still couldn't see it as though, even though it was right in front of their face, and they wound up murdering him. But that was all part of God's plan. It's for this reason that he is termed the rock of offense. Paul has ended this chapter by reminding the Jews and Gentiles of Rome that belief or faith in Jesus conjoined with baptism, or excuse me, conjoined with obedience, is what saves. And as we close today, we look at that verse or that statement that he made all the way back at the first of Romans chapter 9 where he says, I'll have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And praise be to God that he has had mercy and compassion on you and I. Without that mercy, without that compassion, without his willingness to look at all of mankind and say, I'm going to allow the Gentile to be part of my redemptive plan, we are on the outside looking in. But praise to Him for having mercy and compassion on us. Even in our state of sin, even when we did not seek Him, He still has had mercy and compassion. As we read there where it talked about His patience and his long-suffering, that he did not want anyone to suffer. He doesn't want to punish anyone. He has that compassion and mercy, and he's long-suffering and waiting, and he wants us all to be obedient to him. He wants us to be obedient to his gospel call. Back in Romans chapter 3, Paul made the statement there, for those of you know, do you not know those of you that were baptized were baptized in Christ's death? He goes on to say, and liken that too, when Christ, as Christ was raised up to a newness of life, so that we, when we are baptized in his likeness, we're raised to a newness of life. What great compassion and mercy that he set a plan for you and I to be saved. The question is, is have you responded to that plan? Have you responded to his mercy and his compassion and submitted to him in obedience? Have you not been baptized and resurrected to a newness of life as Christ was resurrected to a newness of life? I know there are many times in life that we don't see the compassion and mercy of God. We get caught up in the weeds of life and we think everything is wrong and we may struggle a little bit And we may have very real problems in our life. And we forget about these statements such as this. That it brings joy to the Lord for Him to have compassion and mercy on your soul. Sometimes we struggle and we need prayers. We need strengthening. We need to be uplifted and encouraged with one another. Sometimes we just need a hug. This morning, if you would find yourself in either of those groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.